Okay, welcome my friends to the Bob and Brad podcast uh, produced by Bob and Brad, the two most famous physical therapists on the internet, in our opinion. I am Bob, I am one half of the Bob and Brad team. And our guest today is a physical therapist and co-owner of Entrepreneur, Entropy Physiotherapy and Wellness in Chicago, Illinois. If you're in the area, stop by. Her area of interest is in treating the spine and pelvis with a specialization in women's and men's health. In 2008, she received her doctorate of physical therapy and master of science degree in women's health from Rosalind Franklin University and was awarded a board certification as a women's health clinical specialist in 2009. She's a busy lady. She has completed a certification in mechanical diagnosis therapy from the McKinsey Institute, which is excellent. Uh, Brad and I have done that ourselves. And as a registered yoga teacher, uh, she is passionate about learning more about the human body in order to provide efficient and compassionate care as she helps patients return to optimal functioning. I want to introduce you to our guest today, Sarah Haig. Hi, Hello, Sarah. thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. I, I like I said, I've I've read your book. I'm gonna go ahead and mention that right away. <laughs> uh, understanding and treating incontinence, um, what causes urinary incontinence, and how to regain bladder control. So I, I read it actually a couple months ago, and uh, I've been doing it. I've been doing the keeper <laughs> exercise, and it, I, I, this is a little bit embarrassing, but I, it's it's helped me with hemorrhoids, and it, it also I was getting up twice a night. Now I'm down to one. So that's fantastic. It, yeah, it's really, you know, I, I know that's one of my questions actually, actually is how, how long before they tend to help, but we'll get to that later. So um, can we just jump right in here? If, if, yeah, let's jump in. So let, if you want to maybe define urinary incontinence. Sure. So the definition of urinary incontinence is pretty straightforward. It's the um, basically the unintentional loss of urine. Um, of any amount. So a little drop, it's still incontinence, um, perhaps a bit easily, more easily ignored than other issues. Sure. But, um, but yeah, so it's basically just the involuntary loss of urine. Gotcha. So who are the typical patients you see for urinary incontinence? Goodness, I think women get most of the attention here. We are, um, women are more likely to be affected by urinary incontinence. Um, some of that is due to childbearing, but then also just the anatomy of our pelvic floors, um, including the fact we have very short urethras compared to the male oh. urethra. Um, so there's a, a lot of reasons why women are more likely, but then within that, um, within that population of say women or people with short urethras, um, it's, you know, we'll see women actually elite athletes, elite female athletes who have never had children experience urinary incontinence. Um, women who have had children or who are currently expecting children may be at risk for having it. But then also as we move into uh, menopause and that postmenopausal phase of life, urinary incontinence is also very common, but really never considered to be like normal and something to just accept and ignore. Yeah, uh, my wife mentioned that she was at the uh, one of the drugstores and she saw a whole large section for incontinence products for males so obviously that is it still the issue and i you know i i don't know I, that i had this as one of our questions but can you speak to the i mean it really can be a devastating thing i mean my father-in-law who's passed but he had problems and i mean it just socially isolated him i mean he was it was really devastating i mean it kind of took away his social life so. Absolutely. There, there's a study that um, that shows that urinary incontinence can have a bigger impact, on, negative impact on quality of life than um, I think it was cancer, diabetes, and arthritis combined. I and while that it. might seem right, like it might seem silly, but you hit it right on the head. It can be very isolating, very limiting for physical activity. Um, a lot of a lot of people carry a lot of shame because of it. Sure. Um, so it it can really impact in negative ways. And also, you know, I mentioned your father-in-law um, who had and not likely to be older than you, it actually ends up determining where people end up um, spending their later years. So if someone's in need of extra assistance, if they're incontinent, females are twice as likely then to end up in nursing homes. And for men, it's like almost four times as likely to end up in a nursing home versus being 
cared for at home because sure. of incontinence. I imagine just a simple thing as the risk of falls is higher. I mean, you know, they end up um, ru rushing to the bathroom and or even letting some spill out. It's, you know, they could trip over that. I mean, there's, and, and also mental health, I'm sure is just because of the social isol isolation, isolation uh, which we've been all experiencing in the, in the last couple of years um, can, can have a large effect. So. Yeah, it definitely, um, like, because like you mentioned, the risk of fall goes up, the risk of fracture goes up. Um, and then, of course, if it's limiting your physical activity, your risk for a lot of other things sure. <laughs> goes up as well. So it's, um, it, it can be devastating. And there are people who, who are like, oh, this is life, and they carry on and they manage. But I think we're missing um, a large um, percentage of people who aren't doing well with incontinence. Do you have um, some numbers as you know how common urinary incontinence is? Uh, would you? Yeah. So I, I mean, the numbers are as high as fifty percent. Um, once we oh, end right. up becoming senior citizens, the numbers um, like for for younger folk that um, are, are varied. I mean, there's some um, I'm trying to remember more exact numbers, but there's you know for elite athletes, the likelihood of experiencing stress incontinence depending on the sport can be as high as like 75 or 80%. Um, so oh. it's, I would say it's so much more common than probably we acknowledge um, in, in many age groups. Sure. Um, some of these we've already talked about. Um, maybe we'll, you know, I want to bore people and this, is, this audience is the lay person, but um, what are the normal workings of the bladder? You know, how, how often do people void, you know, um, how do you make sure that you're emptying the bladder completely? I mean, all those questions. Great questions. Um, I, that's actually part of a lecture I give is because it's like, before you can decide what's not normal, like most of us don't really understand what's normal for bladder and bowel function. So for the bladder, um, it's pretty normal to be able to go at least two hours up to five hours um, between trips to the bathroom. There are things, and I always say that, like, I, I love to have the asterisk at the end of that, because there's times where if I have three coffees, I might be going more than once every two hours, yeah. but there's an understandable reason. Um, so th there's always caveats to that, but you should be able to go um, two to five hours between trips to the bathroom. Um, as far as emptying all the way, luckily our bladder has a lot of autonomic nervous system control. So that means it's automatic. It's gonna do what it needs to do to keep us alive. And with that, when we void um, or when we go to the bathroom and urinate, it's normal to have between five and 50 milliliters of urine left over in the bladder. Um, if it gets to be more than that very frequently, we wanna figure out why, and there's a myriad of reasons why that might be the case. But with that five to 50 milliliters, that is normal. And some people get very caught up in it because sometimes we'll finish going to the bathroom but then feel like we still need to go a little bit more and we'll be able to get out a little bit more of that post-void residual. And then we'll start to think we're not emptying appropriately. I like to remind people that the bladder functioning normally, it's a reservoir to store that, that the urine. So having a little bit left over is okay and isn't, any, isn't a sign of anything bad. Sure. Um, so uh, like kind of in a more general sense, when everything's working well, the kidneys make the urine the urine comes in and it kind of like starts to fill up the bladder and it'll eventually usually like 150 milliliters start to stretch the wall of the bladder and that'll give us an, an early urge to go to the bathroom so it's those kind of stretch receptors that are like hey we might want to consider heading to the bathroom when, when it's a convenient but a lot of times that first urge can go away and we'll kind of forget we had to go Sure. But the bladder's still filling up, and eventually it'll kind of reach that more critical stretch of like, so really, we might need to take care of this. Go to the bathroom, relax the pelvic floor, the bladder kind of helps squeeze everything out, and that's when everything's working normal. Now, I, I wonder how much genetics play a role into this, because, I mean, I always feel like I had, you know, quote, a small bladder. <laughs> I mean, all my life, I felt like, you know other people could hold it longer than me and so. So I, I'd say the genetics might play into the actual size of our bladder, but I've definitely had friends who have also claimed the small bladder syndrome. Um, 
And, and I wonder, you know, cause people's bladders are different sizes, but also I would say just my opinion, a greater impact would be um, like how we're potty trained and how, how bladder and bowel habits were managed kind of growing up what we kind of perceive as normal. Um, Cause you know, a lot of, you know, when you're a kid, right? There's times where you completely ignore the urges because you're having fun. Right. So you can just ignore it until your bladder's like, seriously, it's time to empty. And then an accident occurs. But then also um, I remember very vividly, luckily it only happened before car trips, but the just go try, <laughs> just go try one more right. time before we get in the car. Right. Um, and again, there's times where that can be okay, depending on how long that car ride's gonna be. But if you're trained to empty every time you leave the house, that could end up meaning you're going to the bathroom a lot and create almost a, a need to empty oh, more um, frequently. Well, I grew up with, uh, believe it or not, 10 brothers and sisters. So oh. we only had one bathroom for a while. So maybe that's part of it. <laughs> a little tra trauma <laughs> there involved. So. Also a place to be alone for a, a second. Yeah, yeah. In the bathroom. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, can you discuss some of the different types of urinary incontinence? Yes, I think if I wished for everyone to know um, one thing, two things about incontinence. One is that it's not normal and that there is help for it. Um, but also is that there are different types of incontinence, which is why something like Kegels doesn't work for everyone. So the most common type of urinary incontinence is urge incontinence. So this is incontinence that's preceded by like a strong and sudden urge where you're like, I'm totally fine. And then all of a sudden, not fine. And, and you have a strong urge to go and then leak. Um, then the second most common type of, or of an urinary incontinence is stress incontinence. So this is maybe what we hear a little bit more. Um, I definitely see it in my um, gentlemen who have had prostate prostatectomies, but also postpartum moms will notice this a lot. You laugh, you cough, you take a jog, and you notice this. So stress incontinence is when you have an increase in intra-abdominal pressure and you lose a little bit of urine. Um, but also you don't have an urge to go necessarily. Would that so it's be, not a, that be mm -hmm. the high end athletes send the two or the, the female athletes? Typically. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There are some cases, uh, some sports where urge incontinence is a bit more common, but yes. So like for our runners, our dancers, um, trampolinists, not surprisingly, <laughs> <laughs> um, have a higher rate of the stress incontinence. Sure. Um, and then we go down to like a third type, which is mixed. And this is a type where, again, when people seek help or read a book and they're like, well, I did this, I did the Kegels and it helped, but it didn't fix me. Um, then typically I'm like, okay, well, let's really look at this and figure out what's going on because it's possible you got stronger and figured some things out for the stress incontinence, but maybe there's still an urge component that wouldn't necessarily be addressed by a stronger pelvic floor. I see. Um, yeah, so those are like the three most common. Okay, well, we'll get into Kegels in just a minute here, but I guess it's part of this question even, what are the common treatment approaches to urinary incontinence? I'd say the best first um, assessment to decide the treatment would be actually a voiding log or a bowel and bladder diary where people actually write down their symptoms or not their symptoms, but how things are working. So from a, a voiding log, we can determine how long are they able to go between trips to the bathroom? Um, when they do go, how much are they going? And what was their urge to go? So sometimes people will have a really strong, urgent urge and they'll get to the bathroom and it'll be just a little tinkle. Well, obviously there's a mismatch there and that would not necessarily be Kegels. We might be looking more at um, what we refer to as like behavioral interventions. Oh, yeah. So like, um, yeah, like looking at timed voiding or, um, urge deferment techniques, or even looking at bladder irritants. Um, oh, and sorry, what we're using. Urge to what was that? Um, urge deferment. What's that mean? So there are some times where we get an urge, and of course our um, limbic system, our, our little lizard brain is like, Ugh, we're grownups, don't pee our pants. So we will um, attend to that urgent urge as a real indication of how badly we have to go. Um, and then run to the bathroom. Sometimes once we establish that that urge is perhaps a little bit overly, uh, a little bit elevated, um, there are some things we can do to start to um, give that person a little more 
control over that urge. And then, so then we can wait a little bit longer between trips to the bathroom. I see. So with that voiding log, are you also keeping track of what you're drinking? I, I imagine. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So keep keeping track of um, what you're drinking and, and how much of it. So I've, I have had people where, you know, they were drinking honestly close to two gallons of water a day. Oh, and, wow. but their output was apparent was approximately two gallons. Oh. So I'm like, there's like, I don't think you should try to hold this in more. I think we need to look at why are we drinking two gallons of water a day? But some people really notice with things like coffee or drinks with caffeine in it, carbonated drinks, um, drinks with artificial sweetener, alcohol, citrus drinks. These are all things that some people, not all people, find are irritating to their bladder um, or increase their urge to void. That's interesting. So yeah, it, it would be very important then to log that out, I can see. So yeah, we got kind of a family joke. Uh, I don't know if I should mention this or not, but my my mother-in-law, she we would take her on a trip and she, while she's drinking, she'd be going, oh, I need a bathroom. I need a bathroom really bad. And stop drinking right now. Maybe that's the most important thing, so. Yeah, it's it's all about balance. Um, and you know, the if, if everything's working well, we're producing urine um, and we will eventually have to empty, but sometimes just, figuring out or getting things back on track to where it's not, it should be mostly a subconscious part of our day. Sure. Like it shouldn't, it shouldn't be like, I shouldn't be thinking like, okay, we have another X number of minutes and then I can go to the bathroom again. Um, as I like literally stand here and feel my bladder fill. Really, it should be almost subconscious until it gets to a point where it gets your attention. You can go like noted and carry on with your day, but it really shouldn't be the driving, the driving force in your day. Gotcha. So let's, let's talk about Kegels. Okay. Um, so I actually usually refer to them as like pelvic floor muscle exercises because, um, but Kegels, most people will kind of know, ah, contracting down there, but not really as far as exactly what to contract or how long to contract or how many times to contract. Uh, I like to remember, remind people or educate people that their pelvic floor muscles are really just other, they're skeletal muscle, just like your biceps, just like your triceps. So we wanna work them out in that way. Um, but also like your biceps and triceps, we don't just biceps, triceps, and then never use them together. We integrate it into our everyday function. Same with the pelvic floor. So doing Kegels or pelvic floor exercises is a great way to work on coordination and strength. Um, and endurance of the pelvic floor, but then sometimes exercises other than Kegels are needed to kind of incorporate it back into life and where you may be experiencing incontinence. So in that case, are you talking about, like I've seen different approaches to this where I, I, I think in your book, you mentioned focusing just on the pelvic floor, but then I've seen other people talk about incorporating some leg muscles along with it. Um, is that a later thing to do then, or is, is that something I would, you not agree with? I don't completely agree with it. Um, so there are times where we could apply this to any muscle where we have difficulty doing something. So um, sometimes I'll say like practicing your pelvic floor exercises is a little bit like practicing an instrument. Like, I mean, I can flex and extend my fingers. That does not make me a great pianist. Right. I have to work on that. Um, so sometimes when people are evaluated for their pelvic floor, like they're like, I don't know how to do that contraction. Um, and I certainly did this earlier in my career is we, we would use accessory muscles to try to get the pelvic floor to do something. Um, and there may be times where there's a good benefit for that. In my opinion, I, my critical, my clinical thinking now is like, I want to know more why they can't do that. So how's sensation, how's neurological status, all of those things um, to kind of work out, why can't they do it? Do we need to go that route or do we need to just be patient and focus on helping the pelvic floor do what it's supposed to do? So I've kind of taken out the, the let's do something to be doing something to like, let's just do one little thing and focus on it because there's some great research, research by um, Kari Bo, um, who is like kind of like the godmother of pelvic floor research and incontinence. 
Um, and, and she's like, if you want to make your pelvic floor stronger, you have to exercise your pelvic floor. You're, we're oh, using our pelvic floor when we're walking, when we're running, when we're doing yoga, when we're doing all the things, but it's not the same as doing a, a focused pelvic floor exercise. I'm glad you clarified that because I, I, like I said, I've seen different approaches where they recommend, you know, it seems like right away from the get-go using the accessory muscles and uh, continue with it, I suppose. I, they, they didn't, well, anyway, so uh, what should happen during a pelvic floor contraction? Um, and I think you even, you have ways of kind of doing feedback um, that you can do on your own. Definitely. So I'd say one of the challenges with, with pelvic floor contraction is, again, if we go back to the arms, if we go to the gym to pump some iron with our arms, we can look in the mirror, we can, you know, we can see it, we can see the muscle contract. Um, it's very rewarding. We can tell what's happening. Um, with the pelvic floor, it's a, it is a little bit trickier. Um, and again, definitely early in my career, using a mirror to actually look would be one technique, but it's really hard to be in a decent position as a whole and still manage to get a mirror down there yeah, and, and yeah, see anything. Um, so I really prefer tactile cues and just kind of normal um, normal awareness. So of course now I'm doing a lot of telehealth. I'll just ask someone what to, what are you feeling when you do this? What do you feel move? And I can kind of get an idea of like, is that the muscle that's supposed to be moving or not really? Um, so, but I do like tactile cues. It's not that hard to reach. Um, and then there are also other things that you could perhaps sit on that would give a little extra tactile cueing to that area that should be moving. Well, maybe I'll jump ahead to that then. Is, is that the PF prop? Would that do such a thing? Yeah, so that is a, that is a commercial option available from OPTP that, um, that I get no money if anyone buys it. <laughs> um, so it is, um, so it's kind of just like a foam cylinder um, and it does have uh, two sides. Um, that you can sit on. So if you're sitting on a firm chair and you put it kind of between your legs like a very skinny bike seat, um, you can actually feel the contraction a little bit more because there is that extra proprioceptive input. Um, so that's a good way where then your hands are free and you don't have to do any slightly awkward reaching. Sure, do, do you still do feedback, uh, biofeedback in the clinic or, or is that kind of, I just you remember. Know, I, a hundred years ago that they used to do it. Yeah, great question. So I, there's definitely, we have a machine in the clinic. Um, I would say I do it maybe two to four times a year at this point. Oh, yeah, right, wow. Um, and there's, there's a couple of reasons why. So the type of biofeedback I have in my clinic is uh, what they call EMG. And so we can use a vaginal or a rectal sensor. Um, and it's recording the electrical activity in the pelvic floor. And I have seen it be very helpful for people who, who have trouble um, feeling good about what they're doing, like feeling confident they're getting it right. But it's always with a big grain of salt because um, the actual numbers on, of, as far as like how many microvolts you're producing um, vary a lot. Oh. And, and so there really isn't a like, well, if you can hit a hundred, you're strong enough. Um, it doesn't really correlate exactly to strength. Gotcha. So it's more activity. And then also, um, typically people can't take it home. So there used to be, or there's, there still are some various pelvic floor feedback things that are out there in the world um, that again, people find super helpful. If they can use it at home, I'm more than happy to help them learn how to use it and understand and interpret what, what the feedback is telling them. Um, but sometimes I would see patients get way too focused on the numbers or how high the graph was going and, and lose the um, internal awareness as to sure. what they were doing. Because ultimately we want to finish with biofeedback and just be healthy and normal. Obviously this year with Zoom or whatever you've been using, you haven't had that option. Uh, so how has that turned out for you? I, I mean, you still find you've been pretty effective um, through Zoom? Actually, yes. Um, it's actually kind of amazing. It's really made me um, think more and realize exactly how much of what I do is actually education um, and, and helping people understand themselves as opposed to me 
poking and prodding and, sure. and, and telling them what to do. Um, so it has been very helpful. And there's actually been a couple of studies for pelvic floor issues like incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, just out in the last year because of COVID um, that telehealth interventions are actually quite helpful um, and quite effective for pelvic issues. That's really advanced uh, the telemedicine world, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, so um, I, I know this was covered in your book. What should happen during a pelvic floor contraction and what should not happen during a pelvic floor contraction? I would say the way I usually explain it is what should happen are the muscles underneath. So basically the muscles that would come in contact with the bike seat, you should feel them kind of draw together and pull up and in. Um, and then I always like to remind people that then you, when you stop contracting, you should feel them kind of go back to where they started. Keeping a muscle contracted all the time isn't strong. It's, it's not how muscles work. Um, so you should be kind of like feel it kind of draw up and in and then go back to where it started when you stop. Um, a lot of instructions online will talk about abdominal muscles when you're doing a Kegel or a pelvic floor contraction. And um, the transverse of the abdominus muscle, which kind of wraps around our middle like a corset, is best friends with the pelvic floor. Because the pelvic floor is actually like 70% endurance muscle because of it, it's part of our posture system. So when we stand up straight, we shouldn't be clenching anything, but there is more activity now in those deeper abs, but also our pelvic floor. So when you do a really good pelvic floor contraction, you might feel your lower abs pull in or tension totally fine. If it looks like someone just punched you in the stomach because you're working really hard and your voice changes, that's too much and that's another thing. Um, so again, so tensioning, lifting up and in down below, and then maybe some lower tensioning in your abdomen. But then what we shouldn't be happening is, I like to say your face shouldn't change and your voice shouldn't change. So face should stay relaxed, no Kegel face. Um, <laughs> your voice shouldn't change while you're doing it but also um, really looking down at the lower legs. So like your inner thigh muscles, your glute muscles, um, usually on telehealth, I'll tell people, if I see you getting taller, I know you're using extra muscles because I'll do like a glute set, they'll sure. get higher and then sink down. Um, so um, another cue I'll give people is that nobody should know you're doing these. So if you're practicing them, so like I'm gonna do one right now and you should have no idea and then when I stop doing it, you should have no idea. It's all very subtle um, and not using anything that would be very obvious. What, do you, do you mind giving some of your most effective cues? I, I know uh, the, maybe a little graphic. Um, the, one, <laughs> the one you had for men really worked for me. I mean, <laughs> do you wanna know what's funny? So this hasn't been looked at in research, but actually a lot of women respond well to that one because we can use our imagination. Really? Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, so probably the most traditional, the two most traditional ones are um, stop, you know, contract like you don't want to, that, that you want, like you want to stop the flow of urine, or squeeze like you don't want to pass gas in public. And even if you just do those two things, you can, a lot of people can feel like a slight difference in, in the accent of the pelvic floor, like where, where it's contracting. Sure. Um, so Sometimes I'll say that finding the right public floor cue, it's a little bit like being dropped into a foreign country and not knowing what language people speak. So people mm -hmm. aren't confident in their public floors. Um, when I am able to do like say a vaginal or rectal exam, I'll start out with like, well, can you feel my finger? And then can you squeeze it? Or can you imagine pulling it up and in? Um, another great cue in sitting is like, imagine picking up a precious stone off of the, off of the chair without using your hands. So kind of getting that kind of like gathering and lifting. Now, now the, cue that, oh. the use of toilet paper, right? That you could do that? You can also do that. I think, um, and I wish I had my pelvic floor model, but if you Google an image of the pelvic floor muscles, they go from the front to the back. So reaching back, most people, as long as they're physically able, can reach backwards as if they were gonna wipe to clean themselves. So you can use um, just a little bit of toilet tissue um, when you find that anal sphincter, you can practice kind of picking that tissue up off of your finger, um, which is good. That is a posterior part of the pelvic floor. But like I said, the pelvic floor all works together. We can favor the front or the back. That might be favoring the back. 
but that's a great place to start for some people, especially if they're not sure what to do. That's a great, that's a fine place to start. So um, am I right in saying though, women should not stop their flow of urine as a, as a practice? Yeah, so we, we I, I certainly don't recommend that on a, on a regular basis. It can be a fine functional test. Meaning if a woman feels like she, like she tries and she can't do it, if she tries again in two or three weeks after working on her exercises, if she tries and she can stop it, that's a definite improvement that she can see. Um, but doing it regularly might create some confusion. So I mentioned earlier that like when you go to the bathroom, like you relax your pelvic floor and the bladder squeezes. Um, we mentioned urge deferment. So sometimes you can squeeze the pelvic floor and have the bladder relax. But if I go to the bathroom and I relax my pelvic floor and the bladder starts to go, and then I say, nope, and then you start to go, nope. It can, it can be a little bit confusing. Um, there isn't evidence that it creates any huge physiological issues that, um, that would be really bad, but it, it may impact bladder function. Um, and there's just other ways to do it that, that, are, more effective. Um, that are more convenient and more effective, yeah. Should we go back to the cue that worked for you? Yeah, sure. I, was, I thought maybe you were gonna avoid that one. Oh no, oh no, I love this one so much. Um, because even so, if there's any ladies watching at any time, sure. um, give this a shot. Is that really the cue is to like draw in the penis. And it's like a very, um, I like to have people feel how the contractions feel different depending on their cue. But like that drawing in the penis, I get way more like anterior pelvic floor, which is where incontinence, urinary incontinence happens. And a little bit, I get a nice little lower belly tensioning when I do that, even though I don't have a penis. So it's it's a good one. Try it. Yeah. I, uh, well, they they all work for me, to be honest. But th that seemed to be the, the one that resonated the most and was effective. So, <laughs> um, so this kind of alludes to what we were talking about earlier. Um, how long before you would expect to see some results? Or, or how long before you think, oh, this just isn't working? Um, Great question. So again, just kind of my clinical observation um, that there tends to be a much bigger issue with like pelvic floor coordination and awareness as opposed to like true pelvic floor weakness. So if I do a test and you're not very good at contracting your pelvic floor, it probably won't test super strong. Um, but the good news is with that is that coordination and awareness can improve a lot faster than strength. Right. So to really get those true strength gains, right? Like if we go back to strength and conditioning, we're looking at like, well, like eight to 12 weeks of regular strength training to like hypertrophy muscle and, and all of that. Um, I do see changes much more quickly um, than that. So I think again, most of the time that's a matter of awareness and coordination than anything else um, gotcha. magical happening. So it can happen. I mean, I've had people come in for two visits and say like, weirdly enough, I'm okay. Um, other people, it does take the time to kind of build up that stronger base. So um, is what are some of the other options beyond Kegels for let's say urinary incontinence? I mean, let's say the normal uh, urge incontinence. So urge incontinence, um, one of the first things I want to make sure if possible is that the pelvic floor is relaxing. So sometimes, um, again, if we kind of go back to that, how it's kind of supposed to be a conversation between the pelvic floor and the bladder, that if the pelvic floor is kind of always kind of tense, that the bladder, sometimes I'll say it's like an old married couple, where it's like, the, the pelvic floor is not being quiet. So the bladder is just slowly going like, I'll talk louder if you want me to. Um, and that bladder kind of becomes a little overactive or giving you um, kind of elevated urgency messages. So, um, so making sure pelvic floor function is still good is important, but strength usually isn't the issue. It's more that they need to relax. Um, oddly enough, I might still give them what seems to be Kegels, but more for that awareness and proprioception um, aspect as opposed to strengthening. So if I just tell you to relax a muscle that you weren't contracting on purpose, 
it can be really frustrating, but also for a muscle you can't see, you know, so like I could take um, your shoulders and go, let's bring them down a little. The pelvic floor is a little harder. Um, so, so sometimes I'll use a little contract for relax with the focus on feeling like, so can you feel the contract? Yes. Do you feel, do you feel the let go? Uh, not so good. Okay. Let's just take a little break, take a couple breaths. Let's try it again. And kind of focusing on finding that let go and having that be the first thing to make sure, again, the pelvic floor is doing its job. But then with other urgent continence or urgency and frequency where you're not leaking, but it's frequently a close call, um, is I mentioned like behavioral interventions. So sometimes it's doing that voiding log and going like, okay, so during the day, like here you are sleeping through the night fine, but you're going to the bathroom every 45 minutes during the day. What do you think would be a reasonable goal to stay out of the bathroom? Like how long do you think you could go? And, um, you know, sometimes I had one person where honestly we were going in one minute increments because more than that kind of excited their nervous system too much. But, you know, some people are like, well, I could wait longer. I just don't. Okay. Let's try that. And then slowly what'll happen is it's almost like a recalibration of the signals where now where you maybe used to get high alert, half full, now you're not getting high alert until you're three quarters of the way full. Um, so just by stretching the time out slowly. Um, but also looking at those, um, what might be irritating your bladder and also looking at those bladder habits. Are you going just in case before you leave and when you get to every place you go? Okay, we need to start skipping at least one of those because you only live 10 minutes from work. So you don't have to pee before and after. Um, looking yeah, at it from that way. This could go back to the, like maybe a carbonated drink or coffee or it could be a possible irritant that, that if you don't get rid of that, you're still going to have, have trouble. Absolutely. And well, and I think sometimes people think it's like an all or nothing perspective. Um, one of my very first patients was actually, um, she did home health, right? So she's in her car all day, but she would drink um, like a, a, what is it? Like 16 ounce um, iced tea, which has caffeine in it between each patient. Oh, wow. And really, wait, I mean, it's a lot, right? It is a lot. So I was like, five to seven of those a day. But then what, so what we did is we're like, well, let's just try. What if you alternated, you can still drink the same amount. What if you alternated tea and water? And so just by limiting, by, by taking out ended up being like, what, a ha half of her caffeine, she was drinking the same amount, but she was able to not have those accidents. So those urgent oh, that's interesting. You know, one yeah. thing we didn't mention with Kegels, uh, how long do you hold the contraction? I thought you mentioned different lengths depending on, uh, well, I, I guess you mentioned different lengths of time, I believe. Yeah, so I, I usually don't have people have a goal more than 10 seconds, um, mostly because it's, it, it is an endurance muscle anyway. We can use it in other ways. Um, and also to be perfectly frank, uh, we start to get really bored holding sure. it for longer than that. Um, and I've actually started using breaths instead of seconds. So if we think about how long it takes us to just do a nice, it's about five seconds. Um, and a, a common error that people make with Kegels is they they hold everything in, and I'm done. Where if I'm like, instead, can you just contract, breathe in and breathe out twice and then relax? Now we've tricked them into actually contracting their muscles, breathing, which is good for everything, um, and also not rushing through a count of 10 that's seconds. A, right, because people start going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, yeah. ten. So that's, that's a very good cue. Uh, um, so how would someone find someone like you? I mean, let's say, you know, we're in Minnesota. How do, how do I find a, a, a therapist who's trained has additional training? Great question. So the Academy of Pelvic Health, which is a section of the American Physical Therapy Association, um, as well as the American Physical Therapy Association itself, both have um, find a therapist searches. Oh, nice. and, you can, and you can pick the specialty. So you can find a women's health therapist. Um, I believe they're still putting it under women's health when really it has been expanded to pelvic. So for if someone doesn't identify as, as a woman, um, 
there are people out there who who are happy to help. Um, and very often in the profiles on those two websites, it'll say kind of more specialty, like some some therapists on that site will just be more like pregnancy and postpartum without necessarily addressing um, any sort of internal pelvic floor or incontinence specifically. So you can find out a little bit more. If you're not sure, um, two things I do is one, you can find me on Twitter and you sure. can tag me on Twitter. Um, and I'm happy to kind of take a peek in my network and see who's around. Um, but also, I think finding a physical therapist for an issue like this or anything else is a little bit like finding a hairstylist you love or a massage. Like it, it really is kind of a relationship. Yes. Um, and we all have different approaches and different styles. And I might not be your cup of tea, but someone else would be. Um, so I, I like to come up with kind of a, a, I can describe a short list of questions you might want to ask or kind of what type of therapies would be in line with best current, um, current practice and current evidence. Um, so you can ask, you know, if you're just going to do biofeedback and e-stim, I'd argue that's not a fully comprehensive pelvic floor plan for incontinence. Um, and also remind people that they should be getting better. You asked how long, you know, Right. How soon might we see change? We could see it right away. It could take longer. But if you've been at it really diligently for 12 weeks and you haven't seen a lick of change, something else needs to change. Something's you're wrong. doing a great job and it's just not the thing that's going to fix you. Excellent. Sarah, do, do you think we have 15 minutes left? Do you think we can talk about diastasis recti? or? or... Sure, if you'd like to. Why, why don't we start that right now? Why don't you... Okay. Define uh, diastasis recti, am I saying it right? Yeah, so some people say diastasis rectus abdominis. Um, there's a lot of different ways to say it, but most people will call it like the gap in their belly. Um, so our, if we think about our six pack muscles and I'm dating myself a little bit because the example I always give is like Arnold Schwarzenegger like in Terminator days, not governor yeah. days. Um, but right, so in a six pack, we, we see that little divot in the middle dividing the two three packs. And so that's our linea alba and where our two rectus abdominis muscle, muscles come together. Now, very frequently during pregnancy and by frequently, well, by frequently, I mean, some studies show that 100% of women will experience a diastasis of some wow. sort during their pregnancy. Wow. Um, and so, so this isn't a rupture of the muscles. And there's actually a lot of great discussion right now as if, if, as if this is even a pathology because, I mean, if we think about what would happen if those muscles didn't stretch that connect or if that connective right. tissue between those muscles didn't stretch, I don't know what would happen. Um, and then, you know, it's important to remember a lot of women get better after that. So a lot of women do fine. I will, I will say there's a lot of, um, I don't want to say mystery, but a lot of, a lot of varying ideas around diastasis and how it should be treated, if it should be treated. Um, and best approach. And there is thankfully, if we look at the evidence, some pretty straightforward things to try. Um, understanding that some women will need more help than others. Um, I might be getting a little, a little ahead of you. But yeah, so oh, basically, yes, for the definition, basically, it's that separation, where then there's kind of a gap between those two halves of our six pack muscles. Sure. And it I know a lot of sites talk about, and again, I have no experience with this whatsoever. We never, I never treated it. Um, so um, one of the signs isn't that you can actually, well, do you want to tell how to do it? To, 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 to yeah, so, so the, the one, I mean, certainly the way I was trained to, to test it is to um, just have a woman lie on her back. And quick side note, men do experience this as well. They don't seek out help very often. And also there's not tons of research. There are a couple people starting to look at it, um, but it's definitely, I would say predominantly looked at as a, as a female issue, especially postpartum. Um, but you would lie on your back with your knees bent and then you would just do a crunch and you can actually kind of feel around in the midline and see, can I feel a distance between those two halves? In the last, uh, it's probably been three or four years now, um, Paul Hodges and Diane Lee did a paper together looking at, are we, are we more interested in getting those spaces closer together or do we just wanna make sure that it's firm between those two areas? So for some women, and again, I'd say this is at the end of the spectrum, right? So this is not most women, you know, the diastasis stays pulled apart, 
um, and, and it's very soft. So even when they try to create tension in their abdominal wall, um, they're, they're not able to. So that then there's a lot of different thoughts and opinions as to, as to what to do about that. But many women do really great with just restarting an exercise program they enjoy. Because um, really there's not, there's not evidence that a particular exercise will make it worse. So for any woman who's read anything um, that they're scared to do, but would like to do, but was told it would make things worse, we don't have any evidence to support that. There's also not any evidence that any one particular activity or approach will help them get better sooner. So I like to tell PTs, we can't fix this. Um, we can't say we're That's going to make your gap smaller. I saw in the research too, but it doesn't stop. I, I've seen articles saying you shouldn't be doing these exercises and I've seen articles you should be doing these exercises. So there's just yeah. no proof at this point. There, there just isn't. Um, there is some evidence that shows being more active versus not active at all is helpful, which actually like I'm good with that kind of a statement because if I never work on my abs, and they look a certain way and then I worked on my abs, they're probably gonna change. So, I mean, that just makes good sense that, that doing nothing for fear of making it worse isn't helpful for a lot of reasons. Um, but you know, I've met women five years after their last baby who still won't reach over their head because they were told stretching their abs would make their, their diastasis work worse. Um, so yeah, so we need to not scare people, encourage them to get moving, but then there are probably people who are better at helping people um, regain the function that they want and the appearance that they want. Um, and, and you can find those too, mostly they're women's health therapists. <laughs> so it, it, you really can't prevent this, correct? I, I, I haven't seen any evidence that would prevent it. I think there's a, we can, we can say safely, there's like a genetic component, um, you know, like what's your connective tissue like? Um, and, and how well does it recover? But yeah, I would say that there's um, being, being strong, like being generally healthy would make your connective tissue healthier. Sure. So that's what I would probably focus on. So no, are there any health implications or complications associated with it? Great question. We haven't found any. Um, so we used to think it might be associated with back pain, pelvic organ prolapse, incontinence, but really um, recent studies are showing that they're really, women might have both, but we're not finding a correlation or even an increased um, prevalence. You know, that women with a diastasis, actually there was one study where women without a diastasis actually had more incidence of incontinence than oh, women who wow. did have a diastasis. So then you kind of wonder like, well, thank goodness for the diastasis that right. maybe managed something better. I don't know. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot we don't know but I like to embrace like the strength and resilience of the human body and the adaptability of the human body um, that I, I don't think it's a, that we, I really think that we should step away from calling it like a pathology or a, um, or a dysfunction. Sure. There are cases where it, where it is, but most of the time it's just something that women can recover from um, as long as we don't scare them into not recovering That's from it. A so I, I think you've answered this question already in a sense. Um, I imagine you wouldn't recommend wearing an abdominal binder then. No, most of it. So there's no evidence that shows an abdominal binder will help prevent or reduce um, a diastasis. Where a binder might come in handy is if a woman feels like she's having trouble creating that tension, um, which I mean, as you can imagine that like, imagine like a, a woman at full term, how stretched her abs are, and then the baby comes out, her abs are still that stretched. It's gonna be hard to create that, that um, tension. So if, you know, getting a binder that feels like a, like a lovely hug in the middle can help people feel better and have, have them feel like they can do more, um, huge fan of that. But again, as far as like reducing anything, any particular claims, not so much. Um, so I recommend like women should do what feels good and get moving. I just, I love that you went over this subject because again, it, it, it you know, it counters just about everything I read. So, uh, except for when I read research and in what you're saying supports the research and the research supports you. So, yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> well, I, I, I do thank the research because I wouldn't have known, right? Like, I mean, I wanna know 
what's most likely to help. Um, and there are definitely, um, I always wonder if it's like taking, taking advantage of a vulnerable population. There's a lot of kits and programs that claim yes. things. Yes. Um, and, and again, there can be benefits to having a program that walks you through getting more active, but that's the magic. It's not sure. the one particular exercise that you did a particular way. Um, at least we don't have proof for that yet, but we do know if you get moving and stick with it um, and stay active, it can be helpful. Thank you very much. Um, so I think we're going to cut off here. Um, I, I want to again mention your book for urinary incontinence, uh, Understanding and Treating uh, Incontinence, What Causes Urinary Incontinence and How to Regain uh, Bladder Control. Also want to mention they can find you on Twitter at Sarah Hag, H-A-S-A-R-A-H-H-A-A-G-P-T. -A 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 and then uh, mm -hmm. she is a website. Uh, for where you're for your clinic, correct? For the uh, clinic, yep. Entropy. Uh, I keep saying this wrong. <laughs> Entropy. Dot physio. Dot com. No, just nope, just physio, dot physio. Entropy. Dot physio. E n t r o p y. Dot p h y s i o. Proven I can mm -hmm. spell it a little bit. Um, anything else, Sarah? You're in Chicago. If if people want to look you up or, and they certainly can yeah on Twitter. Absolutely, I mean Twitter. I'm there quite frequently. I mean Chicago. I live there. Um, come in the summer when it's nicer and everyone can be outside and, and safely distanced. That sounds great. Well, thank again. Thank you again for taking the time to be on our show. And I hope we can have you in the future and talk about some men's health then. That would be great. I feel like men are super underrepresented in pelvic health. So I'd love to have that opportunity. Awesome.